Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 10th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I am going to present a Bertrand Compare sermon with quite a few comments of my own, and the sermon is titled, The Whole Armor of Yahweh. I'm sure Compare had called it the whole armor of God. I will discuss that a little later. I thought to take one more moment of reflection on the current world circumstances and how Christians should face them before returning to my commentary on the Gospel of John, which I hope to do next week. So once again, I will use the opportunity to present and critique a sermon by one of our notable Christian identity predecessors. Last week it was Wesley Swift in this same context. This time it's Bertrand Compare. This is the whole armor of Yahweh, which is certainly what we shall need to withstand all of the fiery darts of the devils, who seem to be everywhere and all-powerful. Of course, so did the Wizard of Oz seem to be all-powerful, and there is some truth to that story. It is difficult not to talk about the hype over the so-called novel coronavirus, and whether or not the virus is a greater threat to human life than any other seasonal flu virus is highly questionable. The numbers are not at all convincing. The methods by which they are counted are far less convincing. And I sincerely believe, as I wrote a month ago, that the hype is a hoax, which has been perpetrated through the media and progressive politicians, along with others of the so-called rulers of this world, to push all of us farther down the road to tyranny and plunge us into what we may call world communism. In fact, by now it should be evident to most of us that we are already living under tyranny, except that most of us are blindly complying to a government which is operating as if it were God. If this goes on much longer, the largest banks and corporations will un end up owning everything that they don't already own, and the government is clearly in collusion. Over the course of 2007 and early 2008, Clifton Emmerheiser had digitized many of Bertrand Compare's Your Heritage sermons, upon which PDF copies were posted at the IsraelElect.com website. I now redirect requests for most of Compare's material from that site to the Compare archive at Christagenia and Clifton's efforts helped to make that possible. Clifton had to scan the Book of Compare Sermons, which was originally transcribed by Gene Snyder, primarily because Gene had become angry with Clifton for some reason. I know the reason, but I won't publish it. And she would not fulfill Clifton's request for digital copies of the transcription she used to make the your Heritage book. Jean's original book is still available from Kingdom Identity Ministries in Harrison, Arkansas, 
But under the title, The Complete Works of Bertrand L. Campare, so it is not confused with the Your Heritage Sermon, which they still sell as a booklet. When Jean passed in December of 2006, Clifton decided to undertake the venture of digitizing, digitizing the transcriptions himself. I will only add that their falling out was for personal reasons and not for doctrinal issues, but Jean herself would not tell me the reason for her anger. In fact, it actually slipped my mind what Clifton had told me, and, and I sort of, it came back to my memory as I was preparing this, that this program. I don't think I remembered it the last time I had told pieces of this story. This particular sermon was digitized by Clifton in October of 2007. I did not proofread these transcriptions for Clifton so far as I remember, but earlier, I believe it was in 2005, Clifton transcribed and digitized Compre's 14-part series of sermons under Revelation, something which Jean had never done. And I did proofread that and supply Clifton with many notes, which he included in his finished product, along with notes of his own. So here Clifton did not offer many notes for this particular sermon, except to reproduce a few of the notes which we had each written for a portion of those Revelation sermons we will include those in the appropriate place this evening. They are all on the same subject, which, with which we believe that Compare was in error. Now, for the sermon itself, of course, it is based on Paul's whole armor of Yahweh discourse found in chapter 6 of his epistle to the Ephesians. In that chapter, Paul made an analogy of the elements of the Christian faith to the full armor of God. On the surface, it seems to have been inspired by Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, and it certainly was in part. There, in a prophetic analogy, Yahweh responds to the complete lack of justice in the land. And we read there in a prophetic analogy, for our transgressions are multiplied before thee and our sins testify against us. These, are the, these words are put into the mouths of the children of Israel by the prophet. He's explaining the problems of the time. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against Yahweh, and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, revolt against God, sadly not revolt against the evil worldly government, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yeah, truth faileth, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, in this evil world, if you try to, to 
if you try to do righteously, they're going to attack you. And Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and the helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will pay recompense. So while the similarity of Paul's allegory in Ephesians with that of Isaiah 59.17 cannot be overlooked, I am quite certain that the true complete inspiration for Paul's words in Ephesians is found in chapter 5 of the apocryphal Wisdom of Solomon. This is important to me because I understand, I am persuaded, I believe that the Wisdom of Solomon is authentic scripture which should actually be in our Bibles because it was written by Solomon. If that's the source for Paul's inspiration, then we know that it certainly does belong in our Bibles. There we read, and these words we should keep with us today, for the hope of the ungodly is like dust that is blown away with the wind, like a thin froth that is driven away with the storm, like as the smoke which is dispersed here and there with a tempest and passes away as the remembrance of a guest that tarries but a day. But the righteous live forevermore. Their reward also is with Yahweh, and the care of them is with the Most High. Therefore shall they receive a glorious kingdom and a beautiful crown from the Lord's hand. For with his right hand he shall cover them, and with his arm shall he protect them. He shall take to him his jealousy for complete armor or for a whole armor. The same word, panoplia, in the Septuagint, which Paul had used in Ephesians chapter 6 in his exhortation for Christians to put on the whole armor or the full armor of Yahweh. He shall take to him his jealousy for complete armor and make the creature, or rather the creation, which in the wisdom of Solomon are all of the children of Israel, and make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. He shall put on righteousness as a breastplate and true judgment instead of a helmet. A little variation from Paul's correlation to Isaiah 59, 17, but like Paul went on, the wisdom of Solomon also goes on. So I believe that this is the inspiration for Paul's words, at least as much and probably more than Isaiah 59, 17. He shall put on righteousness as a breastplate and true judgment instead of a helmet. He shall take holiness for an invincible shield. 
His severe wrath shall he sharpen for a sword, and the world shall fight with him against the unwise. The children of Israel are the whole world of the wisdom of Solomon. Of the scriptures, and that is what the same writer tells us in chapter 18 of his wisdom, which we will quote shortly. Then shall the right-aiming thunderbolts go abroad, thunderbolts go abroad, and from the clouds, as from a well-drawn bow, shall they fly to the mark, and hailstones full of wrath shall be cast as out of a stone bow, and the water of the sea shall rage against them, and the flood shall cruelly drown them. Yeah, a mighty wind shall stand up against them, and like a storm shall blow them away. Thus iniquity shall lay waste the whole earth, and ill-dealing shall overthrow the thrones of the mighty. The thrones of the mighty. These are certainly the principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of this world mentioned in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in that same place where he said, put on the whole armor of God. Elsewhere, Paul had used allegories such as armor of light in Romans chapter 13 and armor of righteousness in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Then this same revenge described in the wisdom of Solomon is mentioned by Paul himself once again in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he tells his Christian readers to be ready to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That's the key words there. You are not going to execute the vengeance of God if you yourself are disobedient. When we finally put on the whole armor of God, perhaps then he may employ us to execute his vengeance. However, note that where Solomon had said that Yahweh shall make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies, by creature we must understand that the enemies of God are not a part of the creation of Scripture. Only the people of God are accounted as his creation. Paul used the same term in that same sense in Romans chapter 8. Thusly, we read in Isaiah chapter 43, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Then a little later in the same chapter, I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. The word for creature in this passage of the wisdom of Solomon is ketesis, the same word which is often translated in the King James Version as creation. Solomon said that Yahweh would make the creation his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. And that shows that the enemies of God are not necessarily elements of his creation, of the Genesis creation. Where Solomon mentioned 
that the world shall fight with him against the unwise. He defines that world in Wisdom chapter 18, where he wrote, For in the long garment, the long garment which was worn by the high priest, was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the Father's graven. And thy majesty, the name of Yahweh, upon the diadem of his head, in that long garment, only the children of Israel were described in those four rows of stones, one for each tribe, four rows of three stones. We can suppose that the racial message found in the wisdom of Solomon, which also helps to clarify the meaning of Catesis as it was used by Paul in places such as Romans chapter 8, is perhaps at least one reason why the wisdom of Solomon is not found in our Bibles today, because it clearly refutes the concept of universalism in Christianity, which was introduced by the Romans and helps to clarify certain concepts in the letters of Paul. This passage from Solomon was indeed the inspiration for Paul's discourse in Ephesians, and it also reveals to us that the wisdom of Solomon, which in many ways may be shown to have been written by the same author as the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, should indeed be alongside those other books in our scriptures, because from it Paul himself had drawn his inspiration. And of course, these comments were adapted from my commentary on this passage in Ephesians, presented here in December of 2015. So with that, we shall proceed with The Whole Armor of Yahweh by Bertrand Compare. There is one passage in the scriptures which is often quoted but seldom understood. It was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of Yahweh, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, in other words, being obedient, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of Yahweh. Compare now asks, How many who quote these verses know what they really mean, even the first part of it, that our opposition is really sponsored and directed by superhuman forces? is no longer believed in most churches. 
and I also have an issue with this, but that's okay. I will continue when the paragraph is finished. I will present my argument. Those who like to consider themselves very modern and sophisticated consider all references to anything supernatural to be only primitive superstition, and they reject it as such. There are many references to these angelic beings, both good and bad, from sources whose inspiration we cannot reject, including our Redeemer, Yahshua. Those who do scornfully reject all this are correctly described as sophisticated. The dictionary defines sophisticated as adulterated with some inferior substances. And that, diction that dictionary definition is actually correct in older dictionaries. Now, here I can appreciate Compare while at the same time disagreeing with him. Paul was not necessarily speaking of supernatural angelic forces in Ephesians chapter 6. While it is true that there is more to the creation of God than man can perceive, we do not have to believe that supernatural evil angels control the world, even though we do admit the existence of demons, and demons we should admit because they are throughout the scriptures. Rather, I am more persuaded that embodied demons, not disembodied demons, but embodied demons, introduce evil concepts and agendas into the seats of power and government on earth. And that is the spiritual wickedness in high places of which Paul was speaking. That is also the pattern of history, not only in ancient times, but throughout the entire Christian era. Likewise, the Apostle John wrote in chapter 2 of his first epistle, Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. The Roman and Orthodox churches and the Protestants after them have convinced people to look forward to a supernatural antichrist. When flesh and blood antichrists have been in the world from the beginning. In that passage, the popular translations all either omit or mistranslate a verb, gegonosin, which is a past tense form of the Greek verb ginomahi, which is to become or of people, it means to be born. Since in this passage it is in a past tense, speaking of people, it should have been translated as have been born. Even now, many antichrists have been born. Since in this passage it is in a past tense, it should be have been born. But the New American Standard Bible translated it as have arisen. 
If the churches had not been subverted by those same devils who hate Christ, perhaps they would have taught us all along the correct identity of the Antichrists as John was speaking of the Jews. Today, more than any, more than at any other period in history, it should be perfectly clear that it is the Jews who are the agents of spiritual wickedness in high places, who have been promoting evil agendas in every seat of government on earth. And Paul of Tarsus, as well as Christ himself, had identified them as the princes of this world. But Compare is right about the word sophisticated. It is an example of how, in a secular society, evil has been turned into good, and good is now perceived as evil through a corruption of our language, and therefore, also our patterns of thought. Today, sophisticated, sophisticated is good, and simple is bad. Simple is unattractive. The Latin, okay, an archaic definition of the word sophisticate is to mislead or corrupt a person an argument, the mind, whatever, to mislead or corrupt by sophistry. The Latin root word, sophisticatus, meant tampered with. So in medieval English, sophisticated meant adulterated, and as a verb, to mix with a foreign substance. The truth is plain. The apostles spoke of the simplicity which is in Christ. But from the beginning, the organized churches have gone along with the program of the Antichrists to corrupt it by mixing it with worldly philosophies so that people who cling to the simple truths of Christ are even disparaged by society. Continuing with Compare. Those who have made any really thorough study of present-day conditions, political, economic, social, and military, certainly must agree that all the world is in the grip of a tremendous conspiracy. All the powers of human organization everywhere are twisted and perverted out of their natural purpose and function. They are all directed toward the accomplishment of one huge, sinister purpose. This is the enslavement of all mankind under the most cruel and evil system ever known. To me, it is evident that the obvious conspiracy against the Christian West, which has waged war against our race for these past 1,500 years and, long and longer, is not always overtly coordinated. Rather, the enemies of Christ have an innate spirit of their own, which gives them their own intrinsic nature and causes them to act in a certain manner. At times, they do coordinate their objectives through the rhetoric which is spread throughout their synagogues. But just as often, even so-called atheist Jews 
tend to naturally advance the same wicked agendas. As the Apostle John had also written in chapter 4 of his first epistle, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. The Jews do not have God or the Spirit of God, as Christ himself had attested, and therefore every Jew is a false prophet. Returning to Compare, to this end, our schools forbid the mention of the name of Yahweh. Originally, Compare said, the name of our God. Gene Snyder, who had transcribed these sermons, took the liberty of substituting God with Yahweh and Jesus for Yahshua, or the Lord for Yahweh, wherever Compare used the titles rather than the names. These evil people teach our children that patriotism is reactionary and evil. They teach that it is the highest good to destroy our own nation and put it under the limitless tyranny of the uncivil and outright savage nations who are in the majority. Even the grossest immorality is taught by some professors, as reported from time to time in our newspapers. Who are these evil people that are trying to destroy modern-day Israel? As throughout history, they are the Canaanite Jews. These evil people have been thrown out of just about every country in the world because of their treachery and nefarious ways. Here, Compare admitted that evil people were behind the corruption of our society, and he properly identifies them as Canaanite Jews. Although there have been Jewish converts to various forms of Christianity, and there is no place which they have not infiltrated perpetrating the same evil agenda because they don't that they don't change their nature simply because they were baptized by some holy water. So the devil is not in the sky or in the spiritual plane, but rather the world is full of devils. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul had admonished his readers of the period when they and their ancestors had followed after paganism, and he said, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. That is the spirit which guides the enemies of Christ, and it is a part of their intrinsic nature. They're born with it. They are born as antichrists. They don't have a choice to be but what they are. The assault on Christianity in the schools was begun by the Jews in the late 19th century, and Henry Ford published reports of some of the lawsuits that Jews had filed in that regard in the state-level courts in his book, The International Jew, 
in the early 1920s. However, in the 1950s, the assault was finally successful, and, at least in terms of human pretense, God was officially removed from public schools. Compare continues, All this corruption of our children is defended as being the rightful academic freedom of the professors. Those who have gained control of our economic system have led us deeper and deeper into debt until it is now admitted the debt is well over $5 trillion, maybe even as high as $17 trillion. And the corruption of our educational system began in the colleges and universities in the 19th century, or even sooner, and worked its way down to where today even kindergarten children are being taught that perversion is normal. The Canaanites built Sodom and Gomorrah 5,000 years ago, and the same Canaanites, these Jews, promote all of the perversions in society today. As for the figure of the national debt here, this kind of, the number, seeing the number kind of surprised me. Bertrand Compare died in 1983, when the federal debt is said to have been almost $1.4 trillion. It is likely that he gave this sermon in the very late 70s, and more likely that he gave it in the early 1980s. Throughout the 1970s, the decade, decade, throughout the 1970s, the debt was estimated to have grown from $371 billion at the start of the decade to $826 billion at the end. But while the official figure does not exceed $1 trillion until 1982, and that's the most, therefore, if Compre was using the official numbers, that's the most likely year he did this sermon, not long before his death. The debt is not reported to have reached $5 trillion until 1996. So reading this this morning in preparation for this presentation, I was suspicious about the high number for the debt before 1983. However, when Clifton made this transcription in late 2007, the federal debt was over $9 trillion. So I went out, out to our back room where I have some, Clif some of Clifton's books still packed in cartons, and I found a copy of Gene Snyder's original book, a facsimile of the same one which is still sold by Kingdom Identity Ministries. My own copy, I have a copy, but that's also still in storage and not even here at our home. It's still in a storage unit that we had up by the old house an hour away from here. So doing that, finding that book, I found that Gene Snyder and not Clifton had made the change to Compare's sermon to upgrade the amount of the federal debt because the debt certainly wasn't $5 trillion during Compare's lifetime. I think this is amusing and, and it's interesting.
But I also think that it is unfortunate because who knows how much else Gene may have changed. But I knew Gene rather well through several years of correspondence, and I don't think she would do anything malicious, but she did change Compare's sermon here. I went and listened to the audio recording, and Compare said, and I have that audio recording posted on the Compare archive at Christagenia, and Compare said $1 trillion. That's what he said. Jean was a lifelong friend of Bertrand and Inez Compare, and she wrote to me about them frequently. I don't think she would do anything malicious, but she changed this sermon. In any event, now we know that she made these transcriptions sometime around 1996, because that was the year the debt hit $5 trillion. And we also know that she certainly took some liberties when she transcribed them. Compare continues by describing the inevitable outcome of capitalism. The money changers have so involved every industry in this system of usurious debt that when we falter under the hopeless burden, as we must, our entire economic system will all crash into ruin at the same time. This ruin is what they intend and desire to accomplish. Those who control our political system are taxing us into bankruptcy and using our wealth to strengthen our enemies. At the same time, they oppose and betray our only real friends in the world. The result is what you have seen over many decades, the steady advance of Christ-hating Jewish communism. And what better way to usher in what Compare had expected to see and what Compare knew was coming, that we can all see was coming thanks to men like Compare and Swift, what better way than to use pandemics or emergencies, emergencies that don't even really exist, emergencies, and keep people locked up in their houses so that the economy crashes. I'm not saying that this is it, but all of the signs are certainly there. And concerning taxes, will the government cancel taxes for the year? They made everybody stay home. They sent everybody into debt. They made everybody miss their rent payments, their mortgages. What about property taxes? If you're out of work for two months, is the government going to forgive one-sixth of all of your property taxes? Of course not. You're still going to pay them. In fact, they might even raise the taxes to help pay for the $1,200 stipend that they're planning on sending out to everybody, to every taxpayer. They might raise the taxes to make up for that so that you're really not getting anything. It's just sort of an advanced loan on the future tax increases, paid for by future tax increases. 
We may very well be seeing the beginnings of the final triumph of communism today as communist China is made to look like the utopia of technological advancement and social order as compared to the West, which is being systematically plunged into tyranny and economic, social, and financial, well, well, economic, financial chaos. This is being purposely done. And the people, the people themselves are agreeing to its progress over fear of a flu because they have long abandoned any true faith in their God. This afternoon, I, I was going sort of stir-crazy after sitting here for 16 hours over the last two days, and I went with Melissa, and we went to the P.O. Box, and we stopped by Walmart for a couple of things just a couple of hours before I started this podcast. And people are walking around with masks on, and it was like a scene from The Living Dead. It was like a scene from a Hollywood movie. It, it was incredible. It, I never saw anything like I never dreamed I would see anything like it. But the fear and the um, willingness to comply that these people have o over a flu virus is quite incredible. It, it's incredible to me. And they're all just going along with it. And nobody's rebelling. Or at least very few people that I've seen. What we had um, early on in this crisis, there was one bar owner in this town that tried to rebel against the bar's closing, and they shut him down. He, he's not open. <laughs> but nobody complained. It's all for your own good. I would not agree that Jews have any supernatural power or that they are being purposely enabled and controlled by any supernatural power. I would only believe that Jews and all of the related races, since there are many more devils in the world than just Jews, simply do not think like white Europeans think. We project our values and morals on them, but they do not share those values or morals. Even when they give charitably, they have different motives than Christians would have for their charity. Jews naturally operate together as a crime ring, promoting one another and ensuring their own mutual success at the expense of all others. And eventually, doing that, they gain political, social, and economic advantage over all other groups, even when they are a small minority. For example, they insist on egalitarianism, and foolish Christians think that sounds good and noble. So the Christians practice egalitarianism, but then the Jews themselves do not practice as they preach. Only recently have some Christians come to see that hypocrisy in some contexts. But even that only scratches the surface of the Jewish treachery against the society which they have now undermined completely. You might have some Christians say, hey, how about open borders for Israel? But they don't see the treachery in all other areas of life. They only see it in that context. So that might be good that they're awake 
in some small degree that they could realize there's some kind of problem, but they still don't know the, the half of it or the quarter of it or the hundredth of it. Returning to Campere, he speaks of our only valid defense. We are told, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of Yahweh, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Nothing less will suffice. Here Paul uses the simile of the Grecian armor, so well known in his day. Your loins gird about with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. Compre describes Greek armor, but the concept expressed in Paul's words actually came from Solomon, just as Greek armor actually also came from the more ancient nations of the Levant and Mesopotamia. In fact, the entire ancient Greek culture originated with the Hebrews, as we have shown elsewhere. So, Compre continues by elaborating on the theme. <coughs> I'm sorry. In the Greek armor, the girdle, or military belt, was used to brace the armor tight against the body and to cover the space where the two parts of the breastplate joined. This girdle was also used as a belt on which to suspend a dagger or a short sword. The breastplate consisted of two parts. One reached from the back to the navel, from the neck to the navel. The other part hung from the navel to the knees. Then the two parts were joined by the girdle. The lower legs and feet were protected by greaves made of gold, silver, brass, or iron. The head was protected by a helmet made of various metals. The shield was carried on the left arm and was sometimes made of thick, strong sole leather. I guess he means the type of leather that fits the soles of your shoes. Or sometimes was a frame of wood covered with brass or iron. All these things were defensive armor. Then there was a sword, an offensive weapon. He who had all this armor was completely armed for combat. The ancient poets actually went to great lengths to describe the armor used by their hero warriors. For example, Hesiod wrote an entire epic poem describing the ornate decorations of the shield of Heracles which were certainly imaginary, but nonetheless popular in ancient art and song. Similar, but not so fanciful, descriptions are found in Homer, for example, in his account of the Shield of Achilles, which occupies an entire book of his famous Iliad. But now, thankfully, Comparé returns to his primary subject, this was a good simile for Paul to use. We must have defensive armor so that we aren't overcome by the forces of evil. We must also have the sword to destroy our enemies. As Paul indicated, it is not enough that we have only material armor and weapons, which will not suffice against the kind of enemies who are now attacking us. We must also have the spiritual weapons, if we are to win. Well, of course, we're going to win. 
It's just a matter of whether or not we ourselves will prevail or if some future generation will arise to prevail. And only Yahweh chooses that time. Sadly, all of the organized churches have stripped Christians of the spiritual weapons which are found in the Word of God. Instead, they have substituted false concerns of personal salvation and false admonitions of suffering in hell. This compels Christians to be preoccupied with their own eternal destiny, with their own circumstances, and perhaps that of their loved ones, while ignoring or even encouraging the enemies of Christ. So Compare continues by explaining some of what the churches have been missing. Now let's take a look at these spiritual defenses and weapons. Of what do they consist? Paul uses one word to describe each of them. But what is the complete reality of which this is only the name? Certainly no man-made doctrines and dogmas will suffice. We must turn to the source of all great truth, the Bible. This is where Paul begins. Having your loins girt about with truth. In John chapter 18, verse 38, Pontius Pilate asked Yahshua, what is truth? In John chapter 17, verse 17, Yahshua said, Yahweh's word is truth, and it is the only truth that matters. Remember that Yahweh's word to us has been mostly the rules by which our personal and national lives should be governed. By these laws and his commandments, Psalm 119 verses 142 and 151 tells us, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Thou art near, O Yahweh, and all thy commandments are truth. How many of our churches today remember that all Yahweh's commandments are the truth? The churches teach that the Old Testament is just the record of Yahweh's well-meant failure to accomplish what he wanted to do after which he gave up and started over on something within his means in the New Testament. Some of them even apologize for the Old Testament as just a collection of the myths of a primitive people. Can such churches as this ever say they are putting on the whole armor of Yahweh? No wonder they are failures. Replacement theology. Universalism, the assertions that the Jews were the Israelites of the Old Testament, the thought that God cast away Israel, a thought which is even refuted in the New Testament, all of these errors are found in the so-called church fathers of the 2nd to the 4th centuries A.D., Justin Martyr, a Platonist and a pupil of the Jews, 
a man who learned Christianity from Jews, but who was ignorant of Paul of Tarsus for that reason, because the Jews did not like Paul, was ignorant and taught replacement theology. Later, the organized Roman church from the 4th century and after mixed Christianity with Gnosticism, Platonism, and other worldly philosophies, and it was all downhill from there. The churches have never been right, and it can be demonstrated that they also never followed the law, the prophets, or even the apostles. So Compare continues by illuminating some of the errors of not following the admonitions in the prophets. Let's see what Yahweh has said about those who won't accept all of his word. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24 says, Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, and as the flame consumes the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up in dust, because they have cast away the law of Yahweh and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9, warns us, He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, one of Compare's favorite verses, gives us this terrible warning. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Surely, our forgetting of Yahweh's laws has resulted in our forgotten children dying in the fever-ridden swamps of the tropics and the freezing mud of Korea. They have been forgotten in the scorpion-infested deserts of Africa and amid the burning cities of Europe. Our children have been forgotten in wars, which only accomplished the evil purposes of that hidden hand, the Jews, which manipulates our politicians as its puppets. Only the whole armor of Yahweh is enough when we meet these enemies. The entire Old Testament is a warning, example after example, that these things certainly would happen to us, the descendants of the ancient children of Israel, if we remain disobedient to the commandments of our God. And Christ had urged us on several occasions that if you love me, keep my commandments. These same commandments in the law of the Old Testament. We will never have any success as a race without keeping them. And as Paul of Tarsus also said in Romans chapter 15, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. But if we do not learn, then we have no hope, which is the position most of us are in this very day. 
it cracks me up. It really cracks me up, even when identity Christians, even when members of our own Christagenia forum, they're looking for answers and they turn to these YouTubers or these alt-right personalities or these other um, supposed thought leaders. And all of these damned clowns they have all sorts of solutions for things everybody else should be doing, but there's not one mention of the laws of our God. They're all clowns. Forget it. They're never going to have any solution for anything, period. They are all clowns. They should be ostracized. The solutions of men are not going to get us anywhere. So, Compare continues. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, Paul tells us, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of Yahweh, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of Yahweh. Certainly, what we see about us confirms Paul's statement that all these evil conditions are not merely the results of the individual efforts of wicked men. They are all parts of one gigantic, marvelously organized conspiracy, too huge and too expertly devised to be just the product of human malice. Its origin and direction are truly diabolical. Nothing sort of the whole armor of Yahweh is enough for us to withstand it. And we would admit that often these men, or rather devils, do act in concert with one another. However, they themselves have a diabolical origin, and their actions are often the natural result of their intrinsic character, since they are bastards and not from God. I do believe, however, that they are, I do not believe, however, that they are mere marionettes and that some devil in heaven is pulling the strings. Returning to Compare, previously, I started to analyze what makes up the whole armor of Yahweh. We see that Paul starts first with truth, and he compares this to the girdle which holds the rest of the armor together. We also can see that all the commandments of Yahweh are the truth, as Psalm 119 says. Therefore, we can't throw away any part of it in the rubbish heap, as some of the churches do with the Old Testament. We must take both the Old and New Testaments as one book. That was the original use of the word Catholic, the Greek term Catholicus, which literally means 
down hole or according to the hole. It was used by Christian writers as early as the second century in relation to the reception of the faith and not its application. It signified an acceptance of both Old and New Testaments in order to understand the faith of the true church of God as opposed to Judaism or the heresies of the Marcionites and others who would dispose of one testament or the other. Only later was the word corrupted to mean universal, and that created yet another fantastic lie, one with even more dire consequences than the lie of the Jewish Holocaust, since they should still expect one, and they will get it. Returning to Compare, Yahshua confirms this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, where he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall teach and do them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is to remain true until heaven and earth pass. You will find, and here Compare goes astray, <coughs> you will find in Revelation chapter 21 verse 1, this is not within this age, but not until after the end of the millennium and the final judgment. So the girdle of truth is to know Yahweh's word, all of it. Now we must have a digression. Compre believed that a 1,000-year rule of Christ was still in the future, the millennium. But we can interpret Revelation chapter 20 historically and see that Satan was already bound in the pit for a thousand years. When the Jews were marginalized, ostracized, excluded from European society, and forced to live in ghettos or outside of Europe, they were forbidden many activities and occupations. This lasted from the days of the first Christian Roman emperors until the emancipation of the Jews in the time of Napoleon after the French Revolution. One reason Compare believed as he did is an interpolation in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, which says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This statement is not in the older manuscripts, and has caused much confusion, causing men to perceive the so-called millennium as being in the future. But the truth is that when Christ returns, there will be a holocaust of the tares, of the goat nations, 
and only the sheep will remain. Sir Clifton added a footnote concerning this to his digitized edition of this sermon. While Compre did a very good job on this one, meaning this sermon, he still holds to a future millennium which is already past. I will now repeat some excerpts from critical notes made by William Fink and myself on his 14 lessons on the book of Revelation. And this is kind of out of context, so it doesn't really fit with this sermon, but we're going to repeat it anyway. Clifton said, at this point, your humble transcriber disagrees with Compare. For the so-called thousand years, millennium, prophesied in Revelation is already past, but I shall not go into detail on that here but only reproduce on paper what Compare said on audio tape. That this is all in response to part 14 of Compare's Revelation sermons, which was the very last sermon of his in that series. Then Clifton adds another note. I must agree with Compare that there will be a select few chosen for the future administration of the kingdom. And again, Clifton is referring to something Compare said in that Revelation sermon. But the so-called millennium spoken of in Revelation is already past. If it is not past, we will have to go through the satanic Babylonian system all over again a second time. The Jewish ghettos were symbolic of the bottomless pit, and Satan, having been loosed, is in the process of deceiving the nations at this present time. And of course, that should be clear to us all. Now, Clifton has one more note answering Compre at different points throughout that sermon. Again, I would point out that the so-called millennium, 1,000 years, is past history. While Compre did quite well connecting history with prophecy, he failed to recognize the period when the souls were beheaded who didn't worship the beast at Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. The greatest beheading of souls who didn't worship the beast came during the French Revolution with the use of the guillotine. It is a well-known fact that the French Revolution was at the beginning of communism. Even Napoleon served as an officer under the Communist Party. Prior to this beheading at verse 4, you will notice that Satan was loosed at the end of verse 3. Thus, verses 3 and 4 are closely tied together. In other words, Shortly after Satan was loosed, off came the heads. You'll remember that when the Catholic Church put a so-called heretic to death, they liked to burn them at the stake to give them a head start to hell. The binding and loosing of Satan and the beheading of souls are past history. Now Clifton also included two of the notes which I had sent him in regard to Compare's sermon. Revelation part 14. I sent him 25 notes in regard to that sermon, 
which are still available on the Compare archive at Christagenia. These are notes 13 and 16. Note 13. Compre here admits that the other races actually have to be exterminated if you go read or listen to part 14 of Compre's sermon on the, Revel on, on the Revelation. He agrees with Mine and Clifton's position on the other races and their final destiny completely. Compre here admits that the other races actually have to be exterminated upon the return of Christ, which is true. However, it leaves no room for Compare's statements elsewhere, where he claims that after the millennium, at least 1,000 years after the return of Christ and his rule, Gog and Magog will again be gathered to battle against Israel. How could they be if they are already destroyed? Compare is divided against himself on this issue, not realizing that the millennium has already transpired. Now, before I read the last note, I'm going to read Micah chapter 4, verse 5, a verse Compare cited in that sermon so that we understand the reference. Yahweh had promised to gather Israel and then to judge the nations, but before the children of Israel are given the call to arise and thresh, we read in, in part, in verse 5, For all people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. So for the last note which Clifton provided from the notes which I sent him on that Revelation sermon, here Compare misunderstands Micah chapter 4, verse 5. Again, in order to support his view concerning a so-called future millennium. And what he fails to notice is that the gods of the heathen races, all nations will walk in the name of his God. The gods of the heathen races are dead. Yahweh, being God, is the inventor of all things, including tongue-in-cheek irony. For as their gods are dead, so shall the non-Adamic races be at the end of this age. And I made references to um, four different chapters in Isaiah. And I wrote, and I must also ask, where has the heathen ever lived by the laws of Yahweh? Not even Israel has obeyed such laws for any substantial period of time refuting in his Revelation sermons Compare's belief in a millennium. So Compare believed in a millennium, but he thought that after the millennium, all of the non-Adamic races, all of the goat nations would be permanently destroyed. This is what both Clifton and myself have also believed for the past 20 years, even though clowns like Eli James have accused me of manufacturing this belief only recently. Here I was writing it in 2007. I actually wrote it long before that. 
The only difference we have with Compre in this regard is that we understand the millennium to be already past as at least a mostly Jew-free Christianity did indeed prevail in Europe for over a thousand years. But this does not detract from Compre's sermon and intentions here. Returning to Compre, he continues to discuss the elements of which the full armor of Yahweh consists, and with the truth and the commandments being the first. He says next, Paul mentions the breastplate of righteousness. This, we might say, is to do Yahweh's truth. This is not a new idea in the Bible. Speaking of Yahweh, Isaiah chapter 59, 17 says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation upon his head. Paul carries this same simile into Ephesians, which we have quoted. The Bible has much to say about righteousness and about what it will do for us. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 18 records, Oh, that thou had hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the sea. Isaiah chapter 32, verses 16 to 18, fills out this picture. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation, and in sure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. How very different this is from the conditions we see about us today. The reason for this is we have abandoned Yahweh's truth and lost our righteousness thereby. We are not yet able to say what Isaiah 26 verses 1 and 2 say. We have a strong city. Salvation will Yahweh appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. Isn't this due in a very significant part to the fact that many churches have sounded the trumpet so uncertainly? that their followers have not prepared for the battle. I would think that the churches haven't sounded the trumpet at all, unless it's for some Easter egg hunt or some other pagan ritual. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6, gives the rules. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season. His leaf shall also not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. 
even in spite of the fact that the medieval church was wrong about the identity of the Jews, which it always took for granted, and even if it was wrong about replacement theology and many other matters of doctrine, which are far more important pertaining to our situation today, it nevertheless flourished. It nevertheless flourished because it taught the people basic morality in accordance with the commandments of God. The Jew was ostracized not only because he was a Jew, but because he could not live according to that morality. Now we have Jews. We once again have Sodom and Gomorrah. And we wonder why we have so many problems. While the Jew steers the people away from the only cure. Now Compare rightly concludes concerning the law because he had also rightly understood that all Israel would indeed be saved. And he says, the laws of Yahweh were not intended for the salvation of our soul in the next life. They certainly were not. But for our guidance in this life, the dietary laws were concerned with your health here and now, not after death. The economic laws were to give us prosperity now with money we spend here and don't take to the grave with us. Now, as he continues, Compare also understood. He understood those things because none of us could ever keep the law perfectly. So he says, salvation, redemption, and immortality we never could have gained in any way other than by the sacrifice Yahshua made for us on the cross. The law, properly understood, does not conflict with this. If we had been taught to obey the laws of Yahweh, we would have had a more prosperous nation, a nation that is enjoying good health and free of the terrible plagues of cancer and heart disease, tuberculosis and polio and fake-assed coronavirus. We would be a nation so powerful that no enemy could hope to stand before us. If we had put on the breastplate of truth and obeyed the laws of Yahweh, we wouldn't have our present troubles. And of course, the virus might be real, but the pandemic certainly is not. It is not a pandemic of any apocalyptic scale, which should be causing concerned to the degree that the entire economy is shut down. It's ridiculous. For the same reasons, those of us who know this should have no fear. So Compare continues. Next, Paul says that our feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, not the false satanic hope of peace by reliance upon the pagan, Christ-hating countries of the United Nations. Peace never comes from leaders of these pagan countries. They don't even know the meaning of peace. However, many churches of today teach that our only hope of peace is in surrendering to the United Nations. Have they ever heard that the Prince of Peace is Yahshua? And, of course, Compare thought that the United Nations 
was the bogeyman. He did not envision the situation which we face today, where the entire freaking United Nations now sits in the United States Congress. We don't need a United Nations. We got all these niggers, gooks, squat monsters, um, Latin American taco goblins, and all of these other genetic freaks and beasts and goats sitting right in Congress. Who needs a United Nations? Of course, Compare couldn't have foreseen that. But he continues. And where he continues, he is certainly correct. Peace can only come on Yahweh's own terms. After Yahweh's kingdom has been established. <laughs> after Yahweh's kingdom has been established. I'm sorry if I don't laugh, I'll probably cry. <laughs> Yahshua confirms this. For in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Only under the rule of Yahweh will peace come. The scriptures verify this throughout the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, we read these famous words. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. It is only when the kingdom of Yahweh has become an effective reality on earth, the good tidings of peace can be published and not otherwise. And of course, this is the whole purpose of the gospel, that Yahweh has announced peace and reconciliation to the children of Israel, through which Israel is called to depart from idolatry and keep his commandments. This is the repairing of the breach of ancient times, when Israel was put off and divorced and punished. The other races and nations do not factor into the equation. And the only way that Israel can have peace is to be obedient to Christ. If they refuse, then the punishment will be magnified until they do. The beasts are used very often to execute that punishment, as we read in our Old Testament. Compre is also right that for the other races, there really is no peace. Peace to them is only when they have everything which we own, and then they can devour even our flesh. Continuing with Compare. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 records, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh will perform this. Now, there are some Bible students who point out the Septuagint reading of Isaiah chapter 
9, verse 6 especially, and claim that the original text did not say this. But this is one place where the Dead Sea Scrolls support the reading in the Masoretic text and not the reading in the Septuagint. It seems that the Septuagint reading is actually corrupt in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Compare continues, it is only of Yahweh's government and peace that there shall be no end. These scriptures have never promised us any other peace. Peace is really obedience to God. And then the children of Israel are promised peace. It's that simple. Any other peace is a, an artificial peace between men. You have no peace unless you make peace with God. He is the only one who counts. Peace certainly cannot come under the United Nations, which recognizes no God but the stone idol of Zeus, which stands in the lobby of its building in New York City. We are told to have shod, to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are to be ready for our part in bringing our nation in joyous obedience to Yahshua, our Redeemer, from whom alone can we ever hear the good news of peace. If we aren't ready, so much the worse for us. In Mark chapter 13, verses 34 through 37, Yahshua warned us, For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Compare talking about faith. It's faith which leads one to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at evening or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, Watch. So Compare asks in response, how many are really watching and are ready for his coming? Paul says we need the shield of faith. In the original Greek from which this was translated, it says the faith. This is important. Not just faith, not just belief in something, but the faith. I would say it's the faith that Abraham had, which Paul explained in Romans chapter 4. The pagans who worshipped Moloch and Baal certainly had faith. They offered their firstborn sons as bloody sacrifices on the altar, but it was the wrong faith. Today our people do that differently. Today they have faith. They have faith in the Jews, and they offer their sons as bloody sacrifices on the altar of the Jews in our foreign wars. It's the same thing. It's Baal worship all over again. Every young American or European soldier who dies in Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, the wars in China, Korea, Vietnam, the Second World War, the First World War, they're offering their sons on these altars of these Jews, these Baal worshipers. It's the same thing in different terms. There is far too little true faith 
The faith in the world, the faith in the world, in other words, the true faith in the world, there is far too little of it. In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Yahshua sorrowfully asks, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find the faith on the earth? What is the faith? After his resurrection, Yahshua defined the faith. He rebuked two of his disciples for their failure to understand what had happened, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 24, verse 25. O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken, Compre is informing us that that is the faith, and it certainly is a major part of it. Today, most churches believe only the gospel of personal salvation. They despise all the rest that the prophets have spoken. They do not have the faith. Paul says that with the shield of the faith, we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. In ancient times, fiery darts were slender hollow reeds filled with combustible materials, which were ignited and shot from bows. This was for the purpose of setting fire to tents and buildings in a besieged city. Many people believe Yahweh, or in this context, we should say God, exists. But comparatively few believe him in all that he has spoken through his prophets. These people are going into battle without a shield, and the enemy's missiles will take a heavy toll. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we are told, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to Yahweh must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that seek him diligently. We are told, Abraham believed Yahweh, and his faith was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed Yahweh in something which appeared impossible to him. This is the kind of faith which is counted for righteousness. How few of our churches and the people who attend them have this faith today. They have read Psalm 91, which says, I will say of Yahweh, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he will deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the sorrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come near thee. Only with thine eye shall thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. The people don't believe this. They would rather hazard their lives on a treaty with Russia or China than on the word of Yahweh. No wonder they are so lukewarm, they have no faith for which they would be willing to die. And here we have it. 
even 40 years ago in Compare's time that he understood the evils of global trade and international treaties. So now we have coronavirus from China. And even if this is not a real plague, the hype about a pandemic is doing more damage to white Christians than any disease may do, at least since the plague of the Black Death. In Hosea chapter 2, we see some of the reasons for which the children of Israel were being punished, where it says, And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. The lovers were the other nations with which the children of Israel were making agreements in trade, selling off oil and wine and others of God's blessings for things they really did not need or should have made or acquired for themselves. Today, when we trade with heathen nations, we respect their gods. It leads us into idolatry. Modern history has more than sufficient proof of that phenomenon, and globalism will be brought to an end by God one way or another because it is evil. Compré knew this 40 years ago and probably 50 or 60. Continuing in reference to the denominational churches that withhold the truth from men, the ministers and priests don't preach from the Gospel of John or the Epistles of John. Well, they do, but only John 3.16. That's about the limit to what they preach of John. They reduce their Savior to the gentle carpenter of Nazareth and apologize for his strong teachings. These pseudo-Christians serve on joint committees, ecumenical councils, with his enemies and eagerly raise great sums of money for those who blaspheme Yahshua's name. They deny their Savior to avoid offending the Jews. As we have also often said, today's so-called Christians actually worship Jews rather than Jesus, and we wonder why Jews rule over us and we are being destroyed as a people. Continuing once again, if they will just read the Bible, they will read Yahshua's reply to them for doing these things. It is recorded in Revelation chapter 3. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would, I wish, I would that thou, I wish that you, were hot or cold. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. As always, Yahshua is right. Christians who are lukewarm are not fit for this last great battle of the great day of Yahweh the Almighty. In relation to his earlier remarks about the evil of having treaties with Russia and China, perhaps Compare should have cited one further verse from that passage in Revelation chapter 3. 
so we will. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. The people of today are rich materially. A benefit of their global trade, their fiat currency, and corporate salaries. But they are really poor, blind, and naked because they have abandoned their God and they have no spiritual fulfillment or rewards and no reward in heaven. Compare continues with the elements of the full armor of Yahweh. Next, Paul lists the helmet of salvation. It is fifth on the list. You must have the first four parts of armor before you are ready for this one. In the Old Testament, four Hebrew words, all of which are grammatically related, it's actually five words, are translated salvation. In the New Testament, two Greek words are translated salvation. It's actually two forms of the same word, but that's okay. All six have the primary meaning of safety. This is not only safety for the individual. It must also be safety for the nation. If you voluntarily let your nation lose its salvation, do you think that you, as an individual, can keep yours? Among our ancient ancestors, those whose indifference allowed Baal worship to enter the land perished with it. Personal salvation by itself is not enough. Today, most Christians are running around unarmed and naked, except for just a helmet, because the helmet is salvation, and Compre understood that all Israel is saved regardless, so they will always have the helmet of salvation. He says, we can't passively, passively, we can't stand passively by while this battle rages. Besides the defensive armor of Yahweh, we must also have the sword of the spirit, which Paul tells us is the word of Yahweh. If you know this and are not afraid to use it, you can drive the enemy out of our schools, churches, and our government, even out of our land. And this may seem impossible, but it has been done many times in the past. Jews were driven out of well over a hundred nations or principalities in Europe at one time or another. The Word of God exposes the Jews and all other tares. Compare continues. Satan has disarmed most people by subverting their churches. These churches are now teaching Christians must avoid anything which is controversial and that teaching Christians they should and teaching Christians they should love everybody good or evil truth justice and righteousness are always controversial because the wicked will always oppose them Yahshua was the most controversial figure in all of history and still is if you are ashamed of Yahshua because he never cringed before controversy, remember you will have to explain this to Yahweh one of these days. The word of Yahweh must advance boldly against evil. 
in the 139th Psalm, David says, Do not I hate them, O Yahweh, that hate thee. Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. In Acts chapter 13, Paul tells us that Yahweh had said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. No other man in all of history received that honor, a man after mine own heart. Love of the wicked and giving help to them is always wrong. In ancient times, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, made an alliance with the wicked king Ahab. Because of this, King Jehoshaphat was rebuked by Yahweh, as we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 19. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate Yahweh? For this reason, wrath has come upon you from Yahweh. This has not changed in the New Testament. John informs us in his second epistle that we should not even greet those who are not Christians. Paul tells us at the end of Romans chapter 1 that if we accept sinners, we are just as guilty of their sins as they are. So Jews and sinners must be rejected by Christians. But today, because the churches have all been subverted, most Christians are worshiping Jews and embracing sodomites. Compare continues, moving towards our conclusion. Yahshua was always uncompromising about wickedness. Sure, he lost the votes of the left wing and the alien minority groups. But before you are tempted to sacrifice truth for the sake of popularity, remember who it was that was resurrected. A thousand generations of popular politicians are still dust in their graves. There can be no neutrality in the battle between good and evil. Yahshua never retreated. He always attacked. His words are a ringing call to battle now. You ignore them at your peril. For he said in John chapter 12, He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. In other words, we had these words in his gospel. Why didn't we do them? If we don't do them, we will be judged in the last day for not having done them. So Compare concludes, as a real Christian, you are armed with the girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition, you have the shield of the faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. What are you armed for? Do to do battle courageously against us. Let's go with these arms and under. The leadership of Yahshua. Your destiny is victory. And it is. However, how much we suffer before that victory is realized remains to be seen because most of our people don't have a clue of what they really should be doing. And when are they to wake up is only within Yahweh's providence. We can't 
make them wake up. We can know that our destiny is victory, but we ourselves cannot execute that victory. Most of our own people would be our enemies today. I'd say like 98% of our own people and all of the heathen and all of the Jews would be against us today. We have an advantage when we cling to the truth and we know what to expect. 10,000 will fall at your side and it will not come near to you, as Compare had cited earlier in the sermon. So whether the hype over the coronavirus pandemic is a herald for a new age of tyranny, or the fall of Babylon, as many of us even hope, or perhaps just another passing disaster, remains to be seen. But if we do not repent as a people, we can only expect, we can only expect more punishment and the next disaster may be even greater. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.